James Bond and Friends, a weekly podcast coming to you from MI6 HQ. I'm joined by three wonderful guests today. I'm Paul Atkinson, and I'm joined by Bill Koenig, David Lee, and James Page. Go ahead and introduce yourselves, guys. I'm Bill Koenig. I run a site called The Spy Command. I have some other websites, one of which is The Bond 25 Timeline, which is a chronology of the uh, ever-unfolding saga of the 25th Beyond Productions James Bond film. This is David Lee here. I run the James Bond dossier and I am sitting here in my baby blue toweling onesie, uh, <laughs> sipping gin and tonic at my home in Spain. I'm James Page, co-founder of MI6HQ. We've been doing Bond online since 1997, which is probably longer than some people listening have been alive. Uh, which is kind of shocking. And we also have the magazine, mi6confidential.com. Um, unfortunately, my blue onesie did not arrive in time. But you're in your uh, Thunderball, not Thunderball shorts. I'm, right, I'm in my unlicensed romper. <laughs> <laughs> and I am not wearing the Napoleon Solo onesie, by the way. So just to... Uh... <laughs> I refuse. Sorry. All right. Today we're going to talk about more timeless things. The last couple of episodes we've addressed a lot of news and we've complained a lot about the absence of news. So I wanted to dig back into the 24 film catalogue and see what there is to to rustle up. But first, Bill, you were paying some attention to the um, investor call at MGM the other day uh, where they were absolutely definitively sure that Bond will come out sometime next year. Well, they, they seem to be drawing a line in the sand. They didn't explicitly say that, but they talked at least twice during the call about what a great release date April 2020 date is. You know, we'll get Easter, we'll get spring break. And they just, they were like really emphatic that that was just this great date. They'll be really great for the movie. My guess is they wouldn't say that if they like weren't really convinced or at least wanted to convince the investors in, in any case. So to me, that was the main uh, thing that I came out with. They also talked a little bit about their more general strategy, which which we won't get into here. But MGM is trying to position itself. They repeated this phrase at least twice, if not three times, that they are the, quote, leading independent studio in Hollywood. So we'll see. You probably follow the news uh, more closely than I do. Um, but is there a studio that hangs its hat on a property so as heavily as MGM does on James Bond? Is there a, a studio that depends on another sort of timeless favorite the closest there is would be warner brothers with batman but they've got so many properties mgm is like a lot more dependent on bond and you know as a percentage of revenue they're trying to diversify their revenue base but they've hired the directors of the like the last two avengers movies including the one that's coming out at the end of this month they're going to be like producing and maybe directing remakes of properties in the mgm film library so no, it's, it, MGM is still very dependent on Bond, at least in terms of its movie business. April is, I was going to say April is an interesting release month because, you know, I, I would have to look back at the record books, but I don't know when we've had an April opening because the, going back 30 years to yes. License to Kill was the summer, right? That was June and July, UK and US. But I just looked at the the record openings for April films. Um, obviously, Avengers the other year was huge with a quarter of a billion. But if you look at the makeup of those movies for spring break, and for those of you outside of the States, that's the week that everybody in the school gets off. And it's, it ranges depending where, where you are in the country, but it's usually a full week sometime in April. If you look at the, the films that have done really well in that market in the States, it's either a Marvel movie, a Fast and the Furious movie, or an animated film. And I don't know where a Bond film would fit in with that kind of market. You know, the only Bond movie that's opened on that time period 
is not an Eon film. It's like Casino Royale 1967. Well, when we talked about the other day, sort of no Bond film being a template for how the release and marketing strategy will roll up, we certainly can't use um, Casino Royale. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, ab- absolutely. That's, 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 like, that's like a footnote. Yeah. So, I mean, we're looking at an untitled live-action Disney movie. There's going to be a Justice League cyborg movie, which I guess fits the Marvel release window type audience. Um, the Disney movie is obviously going to take what the animated audience would be. But there isn't like an action adventure hook for April in US box office history. So they're going to find a new audience for that spring break market. Does anyone think that knowledge, obviously, that MGM and Eon will know this, does anyone think that that knowledge is going to shape the way they make the film in any particular way? I doubt it. No. You know, to be honest, the way the production has unfolded, there's been so so much uncertainty about when it would come out. I don't think you can actually tailor the movie to, to the release date because that's been a moving target. With Bond fans, there's so much pent-up anticipation that maybe it won't be a problem anyway. No, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah, and the, and the U.S. market for the last few films has been about a quarter anyway of the worldwide take. So One of the Fast and the Furious movies came out in April. I'm, first of all, in my mind, they all blur together, so I'm sorry. but Well, I can tell you, Bill, it was Furious 7, 5, Fast and the Furious, and The Fate of the Furious all came out okay. in April. <laughs> yeah. So, so it works for them. It works for them. Yeah. And, and apparently what, what opened up uh, April for Bond was that Universal wanted to like push the newest one, which is a semi-spinoff, I guess. And anyway, they want to push it back to Memorial Day. So that opened up things for, for Bond in April. It probably is a better release date than St. Valentine's Day. I mean, I know the first Kingsman movie came out on St. Valentine's Day weekend, but you know, it's, there's not a whole lot you can take from that. Kingsman was like counter-programming because it was like Fifty Shades of Grey was like the leading movie that weekend. So, Well, you know, you've got to have the yin and the yang, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I, I didn't realize, Bill, that yeah, Fast and Furious is obviously a universal franchise, so they're just all of their marketing efforts, which would usually be aimed at that month, is just going to be directed to Bond now. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, but Fast and Furious, uh, just to take this a bit off topic anyway, it, it's, uh, it's an interesting franchise because it started off as one thing and they completely reinvented what it was. You know, we, we talk about Bond reinventing uh, itself for, for for the time, but uh, that, that's another franchise that's done the same thing, I think. Oh, absolutely. In fact, you know, I didn't see the first six or whatever. I've seen the last two. It's like, oh, okay. I saw the one two movies ago just because it was like the last movie with the guy who had gotten killed in the in the car wreck. So that that was like that. What caused me to go in the first place? We, we caught one of them on TV once, and uh, maybe it was the first one actually. And then uh, I've just. I haven't seen any of them on the big screen or all of them are on television. We, I think we've got the last couple haven't been shown here yet. So I've seen most of them and I, I do enjoy them. I haven't seen them in, in order either. So Christopher Nolan's very disappointed that you're watching them on the TV. <laughs> Yeah. I, I think I mentioned this before, though. It's because to, to see English language films here, there are three cinemas that are... Each, each is about 30 minutes drive away. They show two screenings a week in English, and it's like on a Tuesday night and a Thursday night. Trying to actually live the life we lead and get to the cinema is almost impossible. I don't want to judge, but I'm going to judge anyway. And I'm going to say, you know, you probably don't need to know the language to understand a Fast and Furious film. <laughs> no, not really. No. Harsh. 
the, the other takeaway I just had from that was Universal, as Bond25's distributor, has an extremely good track record of marketing well and maximizing the box office from a highly derivative franchise. Especially, inter- especially internationally. Like the last Fast and Furious movie, as I recall, like was like okay in the U.S., but maybe not as good as the year before, uh, movie before. But it did, did like really, really well internationally. And of course, with Bond 25, Universal is only doing international because MGM and Annapurna with their United Artists releasing venture is handling the U.S., so Universal definitely knows international distribution. That's the biggest part of a, of a Bond release. So they're, they're pros, no, no question. I'm going to defer to our old man contingent and ask. Oh, you cheeky Well, David, I'm older than you, so it's like... <laughs> yeah, but I, I think he's lumping us all together. Is it everyone but him? Uh, I'm, I'm, feel, I'm feeling the shade as well. <laughs> yeah, 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 you know it. The thing, the question is about... How long has MGM been sort of on the brink in terms of depending on Bond? It feels when like. Is it, when is it not? Yeah, it's, it's flipping from one crisis to another all the time, yeah. Oh, I, I, I have the short answer, 1981, which is when MGM bought United Artists. Ever Downhill from there. <laughs> then, from then on. All right, so Charlie Chaplin spin off soon then. Eh? Yeah. No, it's, uh, I'm waiting for the Pink Panther live action reboot. That's going to be coming soon. That that's on. The, they're talking about it again. <laughs> I was being sarcastic. I know you were being sarcastic, but it's true. It's like because you know they did a reboot with Steve Martin, and now they're talking about it again. I, I was actually thinking of the the Pink Panther, as in the Pink Panther, the cartoon, and then oh. doing a live action animal version, wow. <laughs> <laughs> like the live action Lion King that's just CG. Yes. I don't want to give them ideas. If you're listening, I'll take 5%. <laughs> I'll take 4 uh, Was this underbidding now? It's always a rest at the bottom. Because they're, they're talking about remaking the Thomas Crown Affair again. I think this is going to be like with Michael B. Jordan this time. Are they going to remake the remake or are they going to remake the original? I don't... Who knows? I know just enough to be dangerous and not enough to be a, you know, an expert. Just I saw the headlines like, oh, my God. I've got a great idea for Hollywood, but it's, it's a bit radical, so I don't know if they'd take it. Hire some writers. Or people with books and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the, the lead executive on the call, he said, Creed is officially a franchise now, and we've started development on Creed 3. <laughs> Which is like really like Rocky, what, nine? I, whatever. It just, you know, it's a continuation of the Rocky franchise. Really? <laughs> a sub franchise. <laughs> yes. That prompts another question, actually. We talk about the idea of a franchise. In fact, we bandy it around quite a lot on the website. What makes the James Bond franchise a franchise in your mind versus, say, something like a spin off film from another piece of intellectual property? I mean, in my mind, it has to have some element of like multimedia, right? You've got to have some toys and you've got to have maybe a TV show. In the beginning with the Bond films, of course, there was a book series. And it was actually a book series written by the same guy. <laughs> then the guy inconveniently dies you know, before his time. So, which is, of course, Ian Fleming. The filmmakers have, have been loath to uh, embrace the continuation novels. They barely got into it with Spectre when they had the torture scene, which was taken from Colonel Sun. That long scroll of credits at the end, it was something like, 
there was this long special thanks to credit, which listed a lot of things. And one of them was thanks to the estate of Kingsley Amos, virtually trying to hide it. Michael G. Wilson at various times has criticized the continuation novels. I remember like in the mid eighties, he was asked, I was reading this story. I think it was in the Chicago Sun-Times and he just kind of dismissed the thought. And then in 95, there was this James Bond convention in New York City. It was just, you know, a day or two before the premiere of GoldenEye. And the question came up. He specifically took a shot at the Gardner books. Whatever the reason is, and I'm sure it has to do with money, you know, they they don't want to do it. And I don't know why they turned to Colonel Sun. Maybe it was to try and just get out of a plot hole in their script. Because I I read a script that was like a week before, you know, dated a week before they were filming. It didn't have that scene. And, but the, oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because wow. be, and, and, and the torture scene was better than what was in the script I read, because in the script I read... It was very reminiscent of um, Dinner with Dr. No. Yeah, Blofeld's talking about, yes, when we were kids, we were playing poker, and I finally thought I, I could beat him, and I had this great hand, and he won, but he had bluffed me, and it's like, oh, this is how you become a supervillain? You lose at poker. And they were like, not even playing for money. <laughs> they were playing for, like, walnuts or something. It was just... Like, you know, it's hard to get out of the fact or get past the fact that Plofeld in this reboot is basically a petulant child. Right. <laughs> Hates his father. Again, hello, personal vendetta <laughs> against James Bond yes, and, yeah. and everything he stands for. Yes, they borrowed some machinations from Colonel Sun. The the dialogue basically was still the same. They couldn't get past the that relationship. You know, it doesn't really matter how he was torturing them or what he was up to. It, the, the damage was kind of done at that point, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, I'm going to drag this wildly back on track. But is there anything else from the investor call that you thought was notable? Not um, in a bond sense. They they basically were trying to spell out their general strategy. MGM was trying to spell out their general strategy. They want to do four to six movies and a year under the MGM brand. They want to do lower budget stuff under the Orion brand. They talked about TV, um, but the but the two things were like I said. One, they seem really committed to this April 2020 date now. And two, despite all this talk about all this other stuff, they really are still dependent on Bond. And until somebody like gets out a big checkbook and buys somebody out, it's going to stay that way. I mean, I guess they don't, don't really have the money and the capital to do the do the Star Wars thing where they pump out auxiliary properties every other year. And probably the relationship with Eon would preclude that. They don't have the control over Bond that Disney has over Star Wars that Warner Brothers has over the DC Comics characters, that Disney has over the Marvel characters. They, they don't have that control. It's, just, it's still just a very odd relationship, very uneasy relationship. I thought we could move on to a couple of questions that we've been sitting on for the last few weeks because we haven't gotten to them as a result of news and Funko Pops. I thought we could go a podcast. I thought I thought we could go on without mentioning Funko Pops, but I guess you know. We're at it. Brexit. That was too horned. The mine was delicately placed, James. Come on. Well, I wanted to talk about what films are emblematic of each actor's contribution. We've talked a bit about the Craig kind of era as a whole. I wonder if we can pinpoint particular films that sort of speak to the kind of zeitgeist that was going on all the time. I have one about Connery. Um, with Connery, it's like a couple because you know because he was you know, where it all started. So it's like one would be from Russia with Love because like Eon, if nobody else, and actually a lot of people beyond Eon like to cite that one as you know, a great James Bond film. And then Goldfinger, which because 
which I'm not as fond of as, as others are, but, you know, that's the one where it became a phenomenon, you know, and, and also Thunderball, which kind of, you know, that was like the zenith of, of the 60s era bond. So it, really it's those three with him. With Roger Moore, I'd say it's like The Spy Who Loved Me because that was where Bond got you know revived. My personal favorite for Moore is uh, For Your Eyes Only, but The Spy Who Loved Me was a big deal at the time. Timothy Dalton, well, there's only two to pick from, but I would go with The Living Daylights because, again, it's kind of a, a revival, you know, because the Roger Moore era had played out. And, I mean, I remember being, like, really pumped up after, after I saw it. And with Brosnan... I guess GoldenEye, it's like, I don't see that much difference between the four Brosnan films. Well, except for Die Another Day, which went a little over, which went overboard in the second half. You know that one was made by a machine, right? So Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I do. I do. And with uh, Craig, I, I still would have to go with uh, Casino Royale. Okay. It's interesting. Uh, you, your thoughts are quite similar to mine on this because when I was thinking about this earlier, I was thinking Goldfinger has to be the one for, for Connery if I'm going to pick a single film just because, in, in fact, like, like you, I, I don't. it's not my favourite of the Connery films, but um, it, it is emblematic. It's got the DB5 and, it, and it's, it's got the gadgets. It's got... Uh, it's got everything really that we expect from uh, a James Bond film going forward from that point. George Lazenby can't think. I'm a bit, <laughs> bit torn there, can't decide. Roger Moore, again, I, I agree. Uh, it's a spy who loved me. Living Daylights, yep, I agree there on Timothy Dalton. But then with Pierce Brosnan, I, I think I'm going to go with Die Another Day because I kind of like, um, Brosnan as Bond and you know he, he's, when he's away from the cameras he, he seems like he's a decent guy as well so I, I think there's a lot to like it's just that I just didn't like the films very much and with Die Another Day it's so much to dislike in the second part of the film but it, it kind of sums up the whole era for me. I was about to say with, with Pierce Brosnan for me it's like chunks of each of the four movies I like like a lot but it's like hard to like coalesce around one single film for me. Um, mm -hmm. With Die Another Day, like my favorite sequence is basically from the time he leaves Cuba and he's on the jet and he runs into Roger Moore's daughter as the stewardess. And then mm -hmm. the whole sequence in Blades with the, the fight and all that. You know, and also the London calling and, you know, Gustav Graves showing off and Bond, like, off to the side, watching, taking in, actually being a bit of a detective, you know, all the way through the, the sword fight and blades. And then after that, as soon as we get to the invisible car, it, it falls apart for me. Yeah. But, but that sequence I like a lot. And there, there are segments within, like, say, Tomorrow Never Dies that I like a lot, just not necessarily the film as a whole. With Die Another Day, I don't don't like the pre-titles very much. I think it's just uh, there's too much of it, and it's it's uh, you know, it just goes on and on and on, and it's it's not that interesting. After the titles, though, all the way through to the point when he goes to uh, the disused underground station, I, I think it's really good, and in many ways, it, it's kind of uh, Roger Moore era Bond, but the good stuff yeah. of the Roger Moore era because it because it's got this this kind of uh split between the first half which is is pretty good and the second half which is terrible it kind of it um it, it's it kind of sums up 
the feeling for me that they didn't really know what to do throughout the, the Pierce Brosnan era. And, and just also just to piggyback on what you just said, also in that first half of Die Another Day, when he after he's escaped the MI6 ship yeah, yeah. and he shows up at that hotel in nothing but his pajamas demanding a room and he's so cocky but it's like it's very bondian i you know it's like i, I like that's, that that's gonna that's that's gonna be the next licensed clothing <laughs> yeah. but i was just gonna say that was a missed opportunity that die another day uh, was the 40th anniversary film and they had you know the jet pack and all, all these bits and pieces they should have had the connery onesie <laughs> right. as well in that scene, yeah, the, scene, the, the, shouldn't the they? british navy hospital ship has the blue the blue rumper <laughs> I think it's funny that you both haven't mentioned the other two Brosnan movies and Brosnan himself, when he was interviewed for the 50th anniversary documentary, um, you know, he said, Oh, was it the world is not enough next or tomorrow never dies. I can never remember which way round we made those films. Yes. As like, uh, yes, I remember that. The yeah. best way of summarizing his middle of his tenure. But to go back to the list, if, if you were to do the ultimate box set one per bond or shoot them into space or whatever however we're kind of phrasing this i think you have to do goldfinger with connery even though it's not my favorite of his films it, it is emblematic of his i think that's what the public perceives his implementation his interpretation of the character is it made it made bond a big thing both both yes. in europe and in the united states uh, was, yes yeah. lazy me obviously i mean i i'm a big lover of honor majesty secret service so that's not like one that's wedged in there because it has to be in there i think it would be a top five anyway I, 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 saw it, I saw it on the big screen a couple of years ago in Barcelona, and it definitely benefits from from being seen on the big screen. It, it was a pretty bad 35mm print, but uh, right. good. I'm going to disagree with you and Roger and say live and let die. Yeah, that would have been my second choice. Just because I, I think The Spy Love Me is boring as a film as a as a plot and a story i think it's pretty boring now that, you know but it was living like die i always find something new in it every time and you just get like absorbed into that whole atmosphere and style of the film the spy love me to me is a bit more like bond by the numbers a little bit. well also on, on living let die i wouldn't argue against that the thing that holds me back from living let die is you know the dr kananga balloon blowing up that's just like, you know. <laughs> well, maybe we will come on to that shortly. Just I was just going to say, Live and Let Die was this humongous worldwide hit. It wasn't, it, it didn't do as much business in the U.S. as Diamonds Are Forever had. And so they're like some, like, so like U.S. Bond fans who don't like Roger Moore, talk, you know, dismiss Live and Let Die as like part of this nadir. I said, no, it's it was it was a huge. It was a huge deal worldwide. It was the first Bond film to exceed Thunderball in global box office. You know the studios don't don't get to you know adjust for inflation their 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 box office receipts. They just they get the money as it comes in, and that was the first one that exceeded Thunderball. You only live twice didn't. Majesties didn't. Diamonds are forever didn't. It was live and let die. So it was it was a big deal. Right. If you think about it in terms of marketing, right. yeah. it was the fourth film in a row with a different Bond act, right? So by then, the churn and change for international marketing, I mean, if you were in like one of the tertiary countries, you probably didn't keep track of who was playing Bond at that point, right? If it wasn't part of your culture. And it was also the first one to have a rock band. Yep. You know, Paul McCartney and Wings do the title song. That's significant too. I've seen Paul McCartney come on talk shows and, you know, they play Little Let Die as he walks out to, the, you know, talk to the host. It's, you know, you, you, you can't discount it, put it that way. Bit of a change in that one. And I would say to, to be contrary to you both, License to Kill for Dalton, just because I think it was it was closer to his, what he wanted to do with the character. And I so I would go with that one. And, you know, there's been some arguments over the years of was 
daylights are written for Roger in mind and all that kind of junk. License to Kill was definitely written for him. And he was more a part of that process. So I I think if he had got a third film, and we've done a lot of coverage over the third film, it would have got a bit lighter, but it still would have had that edge to his character where he doesn't necessarily play by the same rules as some of the others. I was going to poke the bear and say that Timothy's most emblematic film is Gold <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Because that one was written for him. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, one of the, dra- the, the early drafts were. Yes, yeah, so I would say, and I would do Gold Knife for Brosnan, just because I think it's a, I know it's one of those films that some people don't like, and it's the style of it is slightly different to what went before and after it. But I, Gold Knife, I think, stands up. The cast is just, everybody around Brosnan in that film is brilliant. So the fact that he's still finding his feet kind of gets masked a little bit because because the ending, yeah, it does tail off towards a little bit towards the end, but not like Die Another Day where you have to build so much goodwill f- through that first hour to continue the second hour, uh, whereas Golden, I think, is pretty consistent all the way through. And it is a slower-paced film. I mean, we interviewed Martin Campbell about when he was doing Casino, and he said if he'd have approached it the way that Golden I was, and that was only 10 years earlier, mm. it was a tremendously slow film compared to Casino Royale. So, and then Casino Royale seems slow now compared to Skyfall, right? With, with License to Kill, this is a uniquely American view, so take it for what it's worth. It looks to me like a big-budget version of a Quinn Martin TV show. Now, Quinn Martin was, was a uh, American TV producer. Right. He did a lot of crime shows, but not exclusively. In my head, I've got this vision of the announcer with the voice of God, James Bond, a Quinn Martin production starring Timothy Dalton and you go down the cast and like tonight's episode license to kill and you know also there's a number of Quinn Martin actors in the cast you know mostly among the Americans but uh like Anthony Zerby and so forth but um yeah and uh, sidebar um the invaders uh Roy is it Thins yeah. Science? You Thinnest? Thinnest. Um, Thinnest. An Thinnest, episode yeah. early in that, in that first season, I think it's like the third or fourth episode, where he has got the exact same costume as Daniel Craig and Quantum of Solace in the desert. Later, does <laughs> decades later, the exact same like um, makeup effects on his face, the hair, everything is identical to that, that desert sequence in Quantum of Solace. And I was watching it the other day. I was like, hmm. It's uh, it's strikingly similar, but uh, he was mentioned as a possible American Bond. I think he would have done a really good job. <laughs> I mean, I, I've always enjoyed License to Kill for for what it is, but it feels. I, I rewatched it. I rewatched it on the plane last week because, you know, spoiler alert, it's the anniversary of that film. So we're doing some stuff for the magazine uh, in an upcoming issue, and I, I really enjoyed it. I hadn't watched it for a couple of years. It definitely feels of its time, unlike a lot of the other. Yes. The, the the dinner plate loading CD-ROM really hasn't aged well. What, we're, we're talking about license skill now. Well, my wife has now joined me, so she'll find this anecdote amusing. So she and I went to see it on the first day. It was open in, in, in the U.S. And we went in, and when we came out, I asked her, so how how'd you like it? So it was fine. I could tell she didn't think it was fine. And so like, I prodded a little bit. Well, no, he, he got his revenge story. So hopefully we'll move on to something next time. And of course, at that point, not, nobody knew it would be six years before the next Bond movie. And of course, they would not be done with revenge stories after that. So it was, um, I, I remember like sitting in the theater thinking, you know what, this movie probably needed like one more draft and it would like it's too bad like Maybaum couldn't have done that draft because but he was sidelined by a writer's strike and all that but uh 
anyway, I mean, it's not a bad movie by any means. I don't, I don't want to sound like yeah. I'm down on it more, you know, but like I say, I know, I know Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Koenig did not like it. <laughs> and I guess by all its time, I also meant that like, it feels a lot, a lot of action eighties, Axel Foley, diehard kind of, it's got that real eighties vibe to it. It wouldn't look out of place. I guess. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that's one of the things that puts me off in. The, the music, especially uh, the score, because um, it was the same composer was doing some like Die Hard and movies like that. And, you know, on the commentary track, John Glenn says, oh, yes, we got this guy because he was the closest to John Barry. It's like, no, he's not. Right. And, and I've heard that supposedly like he didn't want to like do another Die Hard, but no, we hired you for Die Hard. So give us Die Hard. Wrapping this up with Craig, I'd. I'd say it's a toss-up between Casino and Skyfall, but I would, I would probably, if I had to put more money on it, pick Casino over Skyfall, even though Skyfall would probably be the mass popular choice um, for the wider audience. I mean, what attracted me to this question or this concept in the first place, and James, you augmented it a little bit, so we'll come back to that, is it isn't the best one. It isn't the question about which is objectively or, or even personally the best uh, film that that actor was in right like we obviously all have our favorites i do i do skew towards live and let die but in terms of it being emblematic of roger's run i'd say live and let die is not that right. at all i'd say it is an aberration against um a lot of the what was to come and which was when i was thinking about this i was probably going to punt for a film you haven't mentioned yet octopussy mm. because it has elements of the of the ridiculous sort of double entendre humor the visual gags that roger really loved and enjoyed performing right it never took itself too seriously but it also has like some of the ingredients that you'd actually really value in a bond film like sweeping vistas and maniacal villains cold war espionage russians i'll actually defend the uh <laughs> i'll defend the the clown suit thing because i actually think that the tension in that scene when he's trying to defuse the bomb and he's got only a few seconds to go and he is dressed up like a moron i think actually that's <laughs> well and, and the way he and the way he says let me go there's a bomb in there i mean he sounds totally serious he is like yes he's dressed like a clown but yeah and the other thing i would say about octopussy more in my mind has this kind of I know exactly what I'm doing vibe. And for me, the best scene in the movie for him is the backgammon game with Kamal Khan. That is just that's very Bondian and he's just you know, particularly when he yeah, that that whole scene that whole scene's taken from Moonraker really yeah. uh, with Drax, isn't it? But and, but but when so he, it, but when he out cheats him and he and he says, Fancy that double sixes without even looking down at the table. He's like looking straight at Kamal. That's I love that scene. Just spoiled by the slightly racist curry comment at the end, but other than that. Right, yeah, understood. It doesn't stop us repeating it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and don't forget, I mean, the pre-title sequence. It is, I think, a little bit of perfection for his for his tenure and i think it's better than the spy love me's intro even though that's the one that every you know the press always gravitates to with the union jack parachute but i think octopus's pre-tartus is actually better and also i would also say vj for me is like one of the best sacrificial lambs he's one of the most likable and when he gets killed because i i realize about five minutes before it happens like oh no vj is gonna be the sacrificial lamb i can see it and I was hoping against it, and of course he was. And Moore has this thing, you know, later when the, he's in Berlin and he says, the, the driver says, no problem. And there's this little John Barry music and 
Bond looks at him. It's like, you know, Bond's still pissed off that VJ got killed. And They actually managed to integrate the fact that he is a public personality in his own right, and he's a, a celebrity and, a, and notable for something that's totally not acting, into the film in a way that is sort of referential but not doesn't take away from the fact that the character is endearing and lovable. And, and in the first story, in the first draft of the Maybaum Wilson script, after George MacDonald Fraser had yielded, VJ character isn't in there. It was like, you know, there were like, in the film, we have two characters, the head of the station and VJ. In, the, in that draft, it was just one character. So obviously somebody met VJ Armitrage in real life and decided he should be in the movie and... They rewrote it into two characters and made him the sacrificial lamb. But I think he's great. I think VJ, the actor, is 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 great. He, and like I said, he's one of the few. A lot of times, the sacrificial lamb seems kind of formulaic. He's one that you know. Darn it! Couldn't he? Have, why couldn't he have lived? You know that sort of thing. I thought it was going to take a lot of flack for Octopussy, but you know, there we go. No, I think you tapped onto something we all overlooked, maybe. When I said you augmented it, I meant you said, well, what if we're going to fire these into space? Well, I think that's an almost entirely different question, but a very similar question. Because would you fire them into space to, sh- to say we're going to preserve these ones forever because they're the best ones? Or would you fire them into space because you can preserve them because they're the ones that will tell you a story about? Or if it's like the man with the golden gun, you fire them into space hoping that they'll be found. <laughs> <laughs> so much so that I forget, keep forgetting what that film oh, You can't say that. <laughs> I, uh, I follow Apple stuff from time to time. The best line that they had for, from a PR perspective not so long ago was, the Mac Mini is also a product in our lineup. <laughs> yes, the man with the golden gun is also a James Bond film. <laughs> you just occasionally have to remind people that. Me, for instance. Skyfall might be... Skyfall might be the one that people remember longer term for Craig, but I think Casino Royale is not only that's the better film, but it's the one that, fingers crossed, in the in, the, in a year I'm proved right, set the tone for her uh, for what the Craig era was going to be. And Skyfall was the die another day of its era. It was the big celebration. I can't remember. I don't know. I don't know who I could credit this to, but somebody basically described it as Skyfall is an excellent. James Bond film, Casino Royale is an excellent mm. film with James Bond. So I think it stand it stands alone. Casino stands alone as a quality film, I think better than Skyfall does. Outside of mm. we're all James Bond fans. So that's why I would err on that one. Well, Sky- Skyfall would never make it on, on my list anyway. <laughs> well, also with, with Skyfall, this is where myself as an American probably doesn't get it to a degree. Like when Judy Dench reads the poem, I didn't like it the first time I saw it in the theater, and it's like it hasn't grown on me watching it at home on home video. But people, you know, grew up in in England, love it, and they feel it's very, you know, it speaks to the whole, you know, English experience. So well, I, I grew up in England, and I hate the whole middle section of of, of Skyfall. <laughs> so uh, that, that's probably why I had to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Because there was actually – there was one time when I was watching it, I started to pause it, and I started to count the number of people Judy Dench was responsible for – innocent people she was responsible for killing. Yeah. It was hard to yeah. come up with a comprehensive count because the, the the guys playing the cops were dressed so similarly to Silva's hoods dressed as cops. But, you know, at least a half dozen. I think that's kind of been – that was lost in the noise when that film came out. But if you remember, I mean, the, the Eon always had a policy of like the local law enforcement people 
always, you know, whatever happens, you see them a few seconds later dusting off their caps and, you know, and standing back up again. And they weren't killed when that statue crushed their car or whatever uh, it was. I didn't know but that. Skyfall, the, the, the police actually get killed. I think that's the first film where law enforcement kind of is a um, cannon fodder. Yeah, it's a bit of a tonal shift. The, the poem doesn't mean a great deal to me and British parents, but you know, live far enough away from it that I don't have this this crisp sense of nostalgia. But I actually quite liked the the creation of the scene, the way they juxtapose the poem with the the urgency of getting to um, the hearing. Well, I was about to say my problem was you clearly see like Tanner like clearly tells her they're coming for you. It's like if you like just clip that scene, just say oh you know. The internet drop. If you don't show that Tanner tells her, because like the you know the audience is starting to disperse, and then Judy says, "Wait a minute, I have a poem to read," and like and just like okay, so so more of you stay so you can get killed by Silva. Um, I to be fair, though, Bill, I think there is a percentage of the population that would sit and wait for Judy <laughs> to finish. Probably so. Out of respect, <laughs> I won't argue the point. <laughs> There is a national treasure is a term that gets banded around too much, but I think she's, um, yeah, she's in that club. And I don't know. I, the other thing with that, while we're on bashing Skyfall, David, your favorite topic, um, <laughs> I, I still, I still don't understand follow the breadcrumbs, right? We were told that we need to get out of town, and what we want to do is we want to protect Duty Dent. So what we're <laughs> going to do is we're going to lure the villain to an unoccupied thing, and then the future Ian walks in and goes, "Oh, I see what you're doing there. This is very clever." No, it's not. You're taking her to die. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of, you kind of got to tr- not trust uh, Ralph's Ralph ju- Ralph's judgment or Rafe's judgment. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, but, you know, on the bright side, he allows you to drink on the job. So you know. Well, so did she. Like, like it's like they're driving to the airport, and tomorrow never dies. Oh, let's have drinks on the way. <laughs> yeah, she was. She was always knocking it back. Yeah. So mini bar on wheels <laughs> and the, the circle completes itself to episode one. <laughs> that, that's what government cars are for though, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. M, M, M had seen a Matt Helm movie and got the idea. Oh, well, I should have a bar in my car too. Sorry. I'm drawing and <laughs> trying out an old movie reference there, but. All right. Shall we move on to our final substantive topic for the, for the day? Please do before I ruin it again. <laughs> So, in honor of the fact that our esteemed colleague Mark is off celebrating Star Wars right now, I wanted to ask you guys, if you were George Lucas and you could go back and digitally, uh, let's put it in quote marks, fix a piece of Bond lore, a piece of Bond movie history, what would you like to fix? Earlier, I I said, like, I don't like it when they go back and revise movies, but I really wish they would not have had Bond saying, fetch my shoes to quarrel. I don't believe that's in the book. When I bring it up, people say, well, you know, that was a different era. It's like... Okay, that movie was made in 1962. The American Civil Rights Movement had begun by 1955. I saw the movie in a theater in like 1971. It wasn't a good look then. It's like it hasn't aged well. I don't want to edit it, but I really wish they hadn't done it. It Just it really bothers me. 
I think that's a good call. It's not. The, it's the sort of passing line that people don't doesn't stick in people's memory, like some of the ones we're bound to mention now seem to distract you from the plot or what have you. But it's super jarring. And if you want to, I mean, we know that James Bond isn't a hero, but if we want to hold him up and say, well, this is actually relevant in the 21st century, then we can't sort of we can't defend those things. So that was a really good call. I would, in honor of Calvin, who can't be with us tonight, agree with him. The slide whistle. In yeah, oh, yes. Gun. It's fixing a weak film. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, David. I thought it was your entry into it, but in in terms of like, it's a great film. It's a great film. It's better technically than the parachute jump in the Spy Love Me that stunt, but it's completely trashed by. I don't know if John Barry had like three brandies before he did that that night. I know it was a rush. It was a rushed soundtrack production, but and I know he said he regretted it later. Yeah, just dub that out. It wouldn't even need a CGI fix. Just dub the audio track, and maybe just have this little air sound effect as the car is, you know, doing the rotation across the bridge. That would have, you know, I mean, it was an amazing stunt. I mean, you know, a guy actually did that in this era of, you know, computer effects. You know, people lose sight of that. You know, somebody did that and could have easily gotten killed. And you know, it really didn't need music. Just just have silence or this little wind sound effect as it goes across the bridge, and it would have been much better. Because the, 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 there's a documentary about how they did that stunt, in it, which is really, really interesting. Because it was it was all designed on computer. So uh, yeah, very, the first one ever. Yes, yeah, yeah. So uh, very, very interesting. And, and the guy who drove it was like laying down, and like you know, was like hand controls and um, and apparently he had not he himself had not done it. Others had done it. The punchline of the story was. The guy Hamilton watched it and said, oh, this is too perfect. I think we need to do it again. And the guy said, we will not do it again. So I would say to go from the first ever CGI design stunt in Bond to obviously the pure CGI stunt in Bond, which is, you know, the parasurfing and dying of the day. Not the worst bit of CGI in that film, because when Jinx dives backwards off the cliff edge that's actually i think a worse shot than that whole parasite surfing sequence dying of the day has lots of things wrong with it i don't think you could pick one single thing out to fix it but i think the slide whistle and man with the gone gun the other one we mentioned earlier was the um inflating kananga at the end of live and let die it's a cheap effect and they would have been better not showing it and just having like some blood and clothes drip down from the ceiling actually not show what actually happened to him i think would have been a better way to do that Right. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, we were talking about Spielberg in, in the previous episode. Mark, it, Mark really would like to see Spielberg direct a Bond film. I think James, you said uh, no way. Absolutely not. Going back to to Jaws, and uh, one of the uh, things was the shark didn't look good enough and they, they didn't have enough money to, to make it look really good. And so Spielberg worked out that he would do a lot of it, uh, of the shots that he, he wanted with the shark from the shark's point of view. So you don't actually see the shark, you see movement in the water from the shark's point of view, which works absolutely fantastically and far, far better than they could have ever done with with a shark. So, so sometimes it just, you, you need to think outside the box to have a much better result. Yeah, and I think that's also true of Alien when they first tried the, the, the suit and Alien and it looked like a guy in a suit. So they, um, when... 
Scott shot that film, they decided to hide the the creature for as long as yeah. possible. Yeah. Same for yeah. Jaws, and it works it way does. better. And it works way Absolutely. better. Absolutely. Yeah. By the way, just a really quick comment about if if Spielberg were to direct a Bond movie, if it were like the you know the the young Spielberg, like when he directed an episode of Columbo when he was just getting started, if it was like that Spielberg as opposed to Steven Spielberg, the big successful director, you might have you might have some interesting stuff. I mean that that Columbo episode, if you never if you didn't know it was directed by Steven Spielberg, you would know something was up because the way the shots are, it's just visually unlike any other Columbo episode. So if it was like that. Steven Spielberg doing a Bond. I might be interested, but not Steven Spielberg, the the moving franchise. Yeah, that, yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah, I, I I think I agree with that. Some other moments that often come up in these lists, which I think we could disregard, like the double taking pigeon Moonraker, because you would also have to delete like two minutes of the sequence to fix that, <laughs> like the whole hovercraft. Because you get rid of the double taking pigeon, then you know. How about the dog or the guy pouring the beer over the other guy's head or all the other silly little cutaways in that whole series? But in terms of blinking animals, um, the fish at the end of License to Kill. I think that's, I mean, who has uh, a 50-foot sculpture of a fish that winks? (laughs) Um, I just don't understand. (laughs) Like, it it works as a joke if it could actually, you know, if it was actually based in some kind of reality, but that whole thing. You know, nobody has a winking fish sculpture, right? Also, so the, it makes no it makes no sense as a also joke. the the TV evangelist in License to Kill. The problem is he's in it so much you can't just take him out. Um, it's not like take. Oh, I think he's great. I think Wayne Newton is fantastic. Uh, um, it's not my favorite. As a, but. It, well, it's a parody, you know. It's um, definitely a parody. No, no question about it. Just and that goes also goes back to you know a film of its time because. Those TV evangelists were just out of control. There was a guy in this country named Jim Baker who was just – he had his announcer, Jim Baker. And that's, that is probably that, – that probably like figured into a lot of Wayne Newton's <laughs> performance. Are there any moments, guys, in like the Craig era that you think if we could just airbrush a few seconds out, it would be better? Uh, in the Craig era, actually, if you could add something, um, which goes to Skyfall, when Severn gets killed – um yeah if you know like okay he's got to fight for his life fine but like once silva was subdued if you know you had a moment where like craig like looked at the dead severin and showed some remorse similar to like thunderball when paula is dead similar to you only live twice when aki is dead but no what we get is craig gloating radio and that 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 irritates me so it's like all it, you know, like all it needed was like just a few seconds of him looking at her. That's that's all it took. Uh, for, for me, I think I would go for the beginning of Quantum of Solace because that that car chase they I think they trashed what eight nine Aston Martins or something like that to shoot it, and yeah. it, it had the potential for being a really really good car chase. But they, they ruined it because of the way it was shot. So uh, if there was a way to, to rescue that, that would be my big fix for that. Oh, I think I have one, which is the um, opera singing Fiat 500 driver from uh, the Spectre yes. Car Chase. This could just snip yeah. him out. Right. Yeah, I'll go with that one as well. <laughs> yeah, Sharky from Live and Let Die. Not Live and Let Die. Sharky from License to Kill would not like uh, Quantum of Solace. It's a terrible waste of money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Actually come back to the the comment that bill made about um 
about Quarrel. Thoughts on Quarrel Jr.? You know, I overlooked it because it's like, well, you know, they, they filmed it out of order in the book. So you got to have a Quarrel. So we'll make him Quarrel Jr. It's like, yeah, okay. And actually, Quarrel Jr. seemed a lo- little more self-sufficient than a Quarrel did. Where can the, where the hell can the man be? I just, I don't know. Has everyone had their fill of um, photoshopping out the blemishes in James Bond? Should we move on to some questions from the audience? Let's do. Yep, let's do it. All right. So occasionally there are rumors of Ian selling Eon selling up to a big studio. What do you think of this? Would we get decent quality movies more regularly, or could we end up with the famed Sausage Factory? Um, actually, I think there's a better chance of it getting bought by a tech company like Amazon or Apple yeah. than a, a yeah. studio. A, the traditional studios, you know, Disney has now swallowed up 20th Century Fox. I think the tech company, you know, they might like buy MGM and Eon in like one swoop, but I, I think that's like more of a possibility. Yeah, and, and Netflix is now a studio. Yes, yeah. You know, it's a full-blown studio system now. And uh, it's considered a tech company too. Their origins. Yes. Yeah, I think that the, the, the amount of money that Apple is A, sitting on and B, splashing around uh, right now, they were – this these, these rumors came out, you know, they first surfaced about two years ago that Apple and Netflix and Amazon were circling around MGM, right? Because they could have been bought for a pretty good price back then, a couple of years ago, and they would instantly get 50% of the rights to James Bond. The other side of the coin, which does not get talked about very often, is Barbara Broccoli, Michael G. Wilson. Nobody's getting any younger. And I don't think there is a strong handoff right now. So what do they do with the estate if they want to retire? And that's a that's – a, who knows what they're thinking, right? Right. And, and in Michael G. Wilson's case, he's well into his 70s. He's like 76 or 77 or so. Yeah, I, I, I believe he's had heart surgery as well. So, you know, and he's, he's uh, constantly complaining about how tiring the Bond films are to make. So, yeah, it, it always seems like he ought to be on the edge of retiring if he's not actually thinking about it. But uh, The first time I saw Michael G. Wilson talk about complaining about how hard it was to make a James Bond film was uh, – Tomorrow never dies, and it's like when I first read that, it's like I didn't know it. I didn't know it had been going on that long, actually. <laughs> oh yes, it has. Yes, and like that one, I kind of like. Well, you know, that was a particularly tough production. It was, you know, really tight. Yeah, working with Roger Spencer. But, but then he did it again after <laughs> the world is not enough, and he did it again after Tomorrow Never Dies. Like, okay, he's tired. I, I get it. Well, when he retires, we can have him on the podcast, Bill, and then you don't have to be the that's, senior anymore. That's true. Actually, actually I, do, I do take pride in uh, in that 95 uh, James Bond convention. They they had to jumble the schedule, and so they brought out Michael G. Wilson and Bruce Fairstein to answer questions from the audience. And earlier that summer um, – guy i can't remember the guy's name he was a crime author and he was like anyway he had he was visiting indiana ball state university and he says i'm gonna you know he, he was interviewed by a newspaper columnist i'm gonna write the next james bond movie no not goldeneye the one after that and blah 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 and so so when it came time to take questions from the audience i got in line and i said oh by the way um donald westlake said donald westlake says he's writing the next james bond movie can you tell us anything about that? And then Fairstein was standing next to Wilson, and he looked up at Wilson and said, "He is." And <laughs> that that that's one of my best moments in Bond fandom, I must say. But 
<laughs> so yeah, which which shoe's going to drop first? Is it going to be Eon not having the next generation up to speed to pass the torch onto, or is it going to be somebody swoops in and just buys MGM? I think it's going to happen in stages, and I would say the first stage would be Michael Wilson retiring, given his age. Barbara Broccoli is she was born in 1960, so she's no spring chicken, but you know she's 18 years younger than her uh, half brother. So I I think that might be like the first step, and then who knows what happens after that. Yeah, I, I think one of the things is how dedicated is Barbara to to the Bond films because she she without Daniel Craig. Yeah, well, with or without him, because you know she she's always seems to be interested in doing you know stuff in the theater, and you know there are a couple of films and so on. So you know how how much does she want to develop that side to her career before she retires, uh, than just be known as as the the Bond producer? Well, you know, if um, Spectre had gone a little bit better in terms of production um, smoothness and we had seen a little bit more of Mendes, then I was potentially wondering at the time whether he would stay on as sort of EP and help run things, even though he wasn't necessarily directing. Mm -hmm. Everyone seemed to find Skyfall to be sort of like this paradigm Bond film and a bit of a a recharting of the course. And maybe the the thing needs a constant hand, something like Abrams or something like that for the Star Wars or the Marvel films. You know, they've always got people that are waiting in the wings to just sort of shepherd the series you know with Barbara off doing things and Michael getting a little bit old and tired with with the thing they needed somebody else potentially to to do it and what what better way than to attach a you know a successful name to it and somebody who has direct experience directing the Bond film Mm. I've also argued in posts that they should be on the lookout for like the next Kevin Feige it's like okay Kevin Feige is like tied up with Marvel you're not going to get him but like you know somebody like that who's like an up-and-coming version of that and like let them run it on a day-to-day basis while Barbara Broccoli goes off and does the plays and the the independent style films. That person would clearly report to her, but you know, just so maybe just so that the franchise doesn't seem in hibernation in between films. But well, Bond needs a showrunner in the like television series yeah. sense, somebody that will have a have a, potentially have a longer view on the production it's not just in terms of producing them more quickly but in terms of like how do they connect together because there was you know thinking of casino royale quantum assaults being this direct continuation for the first time in history and it really wasn't a direct continuation except in the first three minutes of yeah, the film. That's, that's one thing that really bugs you isn't it bill <laughs> you know it, it's like oh never mind i know i don't want to say anything more i i i'll i'll go on and take this off to a tangent so well, I'd say the other thing that's changed um, is in the in the in the first twenty something years of the franchise, you had Harry and Cubby basically alternating on who was lead producer on every other film. So whilst they're in production on one, the other would be starting thinking about pre-production on the next, right? And they had this kind of tandem yin yang kind yeah, of approach. That, that's an excellent point. With, yeah. Whereas these days, it's all serial. You start one, you finish one, then you start the next one. And so that's probably explains some of why the gaps have stretched out as well, is because nobody's potentially, nobody's starting really work on the next one until they've actually finished the previous one, whereas that wasn't the case in the beginning. It, um, it's because it, yeah. Barbara, Barbara wants uh, Michael to, to do his bit, but then he says, oh, well, I'm a bit tired. <laughs> 
So it's the, it's the four day week one, three day, three day week. But, I know, um, I know how it feels, but yeah, we, we all do. I mean, the I mean, everybody. If you do something for long enough, you will get bored of it. So what you're saying, David, is that the Michael G. Wilson films are actually happening. You just, you know, it's Barbara's turn. She makes Skyfall, and then um, Michael makes his film, and then Barbara makes Spectre, and then Michael makes his film. <laughs> yep, that's it. The other, I think, wider question is, after Craig goes, after this one, how much appetite will they have to do it all again, to relaunch the series again with a new actor? Yeah. Um, I- especially, as, especially as close as Craig has become to them on these productions and as interwoven as he is with it, to, to basically do it all again from scratch. That is as good a time as any to say, you know what, we want somebody else to have a run at it. To bring us back to the question itself was if – if they do make the decision to hand it over, well, are you optimistic that it will produce the kind of results that Bond fans would be hoping for, which is frequency and quality? You know, you can have it quick, fast, and cheap, but... <laughs> pick, pick two from three. Once every three years would be good. Once every two years would be excellent. Uh, not asking for one Bond film a year, but uh, I think it would depend on the attitude of, of whoever bought them, what they wanted to do with Bond. I, I would hope that they would want to produce uh, to keep the standard up. And uh, but I, uh, you know, if if they know. wanted to do that, I think they would have to look to the continuation novels. You don't. There are so many now. And by a number of different authors, you, you. I mean, it's not like you have to like start with the first John Gardner novel and work your way up. You know, it, it, and it takes so long now to make them. But it, it it does strike me that it would save some time because they always talk about, oh, come up with a plot is so hard. And, well, okay, if, if you use continuation novel, you have the makings of the plot. Even if you, like, kind of take bits and pieces, that that strikes me that might save at least some time. And like I say, you don't have to use all the Gardner novels. You don't have to use all the Benson novels. But you can, like, pick and choose at this point. Yeah, it'd be like the moonrakerization of uh, of John Garner or something like that. <laughs> it would take them eight films to use each bit of one of the books. Just referring to what I was saying earlier about you know Hollywood, you know they should uh, get some writers in. But yeah, if you if you use a book, uh, then you've got a, a large part of the job's already done. So just make it easier for yourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When, 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 which reminds me, if Bond Twenty Five is really based on that Benson book. But they call it Shatterhand. If that turns out to actually be the case, I'm going to be like really annoyed. Well, I think Raymond Benson yeah. would be really annoyed too because he'd be right. like, yes. "Hi, Raymond, if you're listening." Yes, either either Raymond was in on it and has been lying, or wait, where's my check? <laughs> well, and there's also been you know the smattering of one-off continuation novels more recently, right, with different authors. Um, you know, Sebastian Fox's book was a bit of. Uh, um, some people loved it, some people didn't. But um, the, the more recent two by Horowitz have been re- warmly received. Why not go and use some of that stuff? But I guess setting them period has maybe put a wrinkle in how much that can be used. Also, the the recent, the, the more recent uh, book, Forever yes, Day. that's the one, it, it means going back to Bond as he is a 007. And I think we've gone through that territory far, far enough. Right. Yes. Yes. Right. I don't. I don't want to revisit that again. Horowitz's first one is kind of interesting. You would to do it as a contemporary thing. You would obviously have to eliminate the specific references to Goldfinger, but um, and 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 that the villain 
you know, had, had been in the Korean War, it, it would at least save you some time in like devising a plot. I, you know, I, I suspect there's some things. I suspect you could make it a contemporary story. All right. Hopes and expectations, hopes or expectations for Jeffrey Wright's return. And I'm going to broaden that out to Felix in general. Are we missing him in the films? Okay. Um, hopes or expectations? I, 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 I really like him playing Liner. I think he's great and understated and he doesn't, he, he knows his place in the film. What are you um, trying to do? Start World War Three. <laughs> but just as an aside, it's like going back to the earliest days of the films like like even pre eon like the first draft of Kevin McClory's project is like writers like are always searching for more for Felix to do and it never happens is like that was the same for for that draft it was like the same for Maybaum's first thunderball draft before they switched to Dr No it's like they they always want to do stuff with yeah, Felix I, 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 I would like to see him back, but uh, I, I think I think he's not he's not coming back. So uh, uh, I'm not going to uh, hold my breath for that. But he, uh, I, I thought he was underused a bit in Quantum of Solace. I, I thought the the whole CIA bit w- was an interesting an interesting angle. Uh, but the the person maybe this is where they went wrong. They they had Mathis in. Both films, yes. and in in a in a way, you, you didn't need. There was, there was there was room for, there was room for one of them, right? Yes, yeah, and uh, they they completely wasted Mathis, and uh, I, I'm one of the people who doesn't like the fact that he was killed off because he's he's one of the kind of classic Bond allies in in, in the books, and, and he I, I think his, his scenes, the scenes he's in in, in both both films, he, he really steals them, really really good. If I got the plotting right, Felix get promoted at the, to at the very Greg's end. Yes. It was job. like Gregory Beam's disc job, so this is going to make it harder for him to come back. Well, also one of the problems with Quantum was essentially the whole CIA is corrupt except for Felix, and or at least all the CIA mm-hmm. guys we see in the film except for Felix, and so that by. But to be fair, it's the but to be fair, it's the it's the, it's the Central and South American division. Right. <laughs> uh, understood. <laughs> but my, my my point being that kind of diminishes Felix because. You know he can't be in on it, so that kind of limits what Felix can do. I mean, he can like help Bond on the side, but he doesn't have the full authority of the CIA. I did. I did like the call out to him, Inspector. I thought that was very well done. Yes. Yes. I was yes. just about to say that. Yeah. yeah. Many people didn't didn't get that. There was actually a similar one in Moonraker where Roger Moore says, "I have friends in low places." That that was pretty subtle as well, but uh, yeah, I think it was more of a. I think it had more impact in the Spectre. So, taking a poll, um, would we like Jeffrey Wright to be in the next film? I would say yes. Agreed. I would say yes too. Which means it's not going to happen now. Yeah, I know we <laughs> we we've, we've doomed him. <laughs> it's somebody somebody else who I, I would like to see come back is uh, is Hinks as a character because. He was kind of built up a bit, Inspector, then kind of quickly got rid of, and I kept expecting him to come back, Inspector. And you know when he never did. Yeah, <laughs> there's a bit, and there's a bit. The M's car gets right. rammed. Yeah, and I thought I thought he was going to show up then, That's, and he doesn't. And that would have been perfect. And I couldn't. And I couldn't. And I couldn't believe I, I so couldn't believe it that the the next morning I, the, after the premiere I went to go and see it again in in Leicester Square and and I, I 
I don't know. I thought he must he must have been there. He must have been there, and uh, I just got it wrong. No, he doesn't return. So he should come back in Bond twenty five. You know, if, if Dave Bautista were a better actor, he could have played Blofeld. Based on the description in Thunderbolt, mm. you know, big guy, you know. That actually, yeah, I, I, I like that as an idea, yeah. We might have also just cursed him as well because it might turn out that um, one of Barbara or Michael's kids really like him and want him to be a goodie. And so he might, you know, <laughs> he might come back in Bond 25 and be on Bond's side. And find a girlfriend <laughs> like Joss in Moonraker. <laughs> and we could have a piece of classical music playing in the background. This this question was not selected by me. When will James Bond movies be shot in New Zealand? <laughs> Why have none of them been to Australia or New Zealand? When, when New Zealand ponies up uh, tax credits. <laughs> yes, it's got to be a thirty million euro or sorry dollar tax credit. Good on the first dollar spent, um, up to up to twenty. Right, that's a that's a good point. I think New Zealand, obviously, due to. Lord of the Rings has not had any issue with attracting people shooting on location. If that's the location you want to shoot, is there a story reason to go there? That's the tricky one. Well, it, in, right. in the late 1980s, um, there was a Mission Impossible TV revival that was filmed in well, it's Australia, not New Zealand. But And essentially, the, the stories weren't based in Australia. They just used it for, you know, it's like Southern California. There's various scenery, and there, I guess there were enough studio facilities they could do it. So actually, if it, if it were to happen in Australia, maybe the, you know, the bond, you know, Eon gets crowded off the UK and they have to <laughs> go all the way to Australia for studio space. But, uh, well, you know, they missed the opportunity on Tomorrow Never Dies to go to Australia, didn't they? Well, and one of the Benson novels actually <laughs> had some scenes, uh, uh, maybe his yes. first one, his first novel. I think from a storytelling perspective, losing a day on the plane is tough. But then, you know... <laughs> In quantum, they fly from Austria on Virgin direct to Bolivia, which I didn't know was uh, a route you could take um, on a major transatlantic airline. But, there's, you know, they have the scene on the plane to kind of try and get over that delay. But I think you have to find a yeah. – I was going to say, the, the plane seems to be remarkably <laughs> empty as well. Yeah, well, as I say, you know, I, there's not many people that want to go from Bregenz, Austria to uh, – sorry, Italy. Sorry, so, in Italy, wasn't Same it? as the Italy train in Olivia the Spectre. Is, uh, that that was remarkably empty. And as soon as Hank showed up, everybody, like, left. Yes. The thing with the travel is it's not insurmountable. Just think about the fact that Dr. Doe, he flies to Jamaica in 1962. What, that would have been, what, like 15, 16, 17 yes. hours minimum. You know, when, when you read the novels and see, like, all the stomps Bond has to make – yeah, you know, because they didn't have those big planes then. Yeah, in, in particular, in from Russia with Love, he, he he makes he must make about uh, four stops on the way to yeah. Turkey. Yeah, and but in the movie, he seems it seems to be a direct flight. <laughs> All we need is an Indiana Jones style map, and then we'll get out of it. <laughs> but Paul, as a resident, are there any good maybe potential story hooks that would take? a story through New Zealand versus, you know, because... Um, I mean, the only interesting thing that I can probably spring to mind immediately is the anti-nuclear politics that's happening. Well, that's been happening since the 1980s, right? So New Zealanders, either side of the spectrum, are staunch anti-nuclear defendants, and we blockaded the submarines that came here from the Americans. We don't have nuclear power or anything like that. So maybe there's, there's some kind of machinations. You know, <laughs> you want to buy some beef? We've got a lot of beef. <laughs> the villain is going to wipe out all the beef in North America, so... I can like corner the market here in New Zealand. <laughs> kind of like a twist on the Goldfinger plot. 
Okay, okay. We can give that one to, to Ian, for, Ian for free. Well, it's kind of on a Majesty yeah, Secret yeah, Service, yeah, isn't it? Is. it? <laughs> Germ warfare. I'll, I'll actually have to think about that, and I'll report back to you when I've got you when I've done your treatment. Um, it's totally feasible in terms of the technology here and the the facilities here these days. Like, uh, you know, pre Lord of the Rings, I wouldn't have said so, but they built a lot of infrastructure. <laughs> Even films like The Meg came to New Zealand to shoot what was essentially entirely a CGI film. Fjordland was doubling for whatever it was supposed to be um, Kazakhstan or somewhere in Mission Impossible recently. So I, I think I remember in an interview um, Chris Macquarie saying how accommodating everyone was in terms of not just in terms of New Zealand, but everywhere he goes, and letting him, you know, letting Tom Cruise fall off helicopters and all sorts of stuff. What we also have as a as a as a great selling point is a system called ACC, which is basically a state-funded insurance mm-hmm. system. So people can do things like bungee jump with ease. We can throw ourselves off things, and if we get hurt, then well, you know, the state kind of oh, cleans really? up the mess. That's where that's where we create our James Bond theme park. <laughs> Live sharks and flames. And we'll bankrupt the New Zealand government. Jump the crocodiles. With all the medical claims. Yes, as an employer or a contractor, you have to specify the, the danger level of your work, basically, and you get high. <laughs> like, likelihood of assassination. I mean, it would be nice to do it purely because, like, you get to check off another place around the world, don't you? As we've maybe potentially bemoaned enough already, like, Italy for th- for the third out of four times or what have you, right? Four out of five. But when you get against Italy, Italy's nice. We have better wine, though, to be fair. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> All right, guys. I think we've we've shot our last bolt. We've run. Uh, what's happened? I'm on a I'm on a quote quote a quote a thon at the moment. Anyway, we have we have run our course. So I thank you all for for hanging out with me, and, and it's nice to get onto some topics that aren't totally speculation and more just downright based opinion. So thanks for joining me and indulging me with that one. As always, to our audience and our friends on Twitter, please ask Bond with the hashtag <laughs> Ask Bond and. If Bond ever shows up to one of these recordings, we'll ask him. And, you know, some simple questions would be, yeah, that's good too. And, and I guess, I think we probably should throw out the caveat there that we quite often have to with MI6. We aren't MI6. Right. And we don't make the Bond films. That's so right, don't yeah. ask us what's happening. And I'm not a spy, even though I run the spy command. So just, I'll throw in that disclaimer too. Damn it. David's not a dossier either. I am not. You're a living, breathing human being. Where can people find you on the internet, David? They can find me at thejamesbondossier.com uh, or the other place I often hang out is Twitter. That is 007dossier. Um, come and say hi or uh, abuse me there if you so feel like it. The Spy Command can be found at the URL is hmssweblog.wordpress.com. The reason for the unwieldy URL is that the blog was once upon a time called the HMSS weblog, and it fell to me, and I changed the name at one point. I can also be found on Twitter at at the spy command, and you can find all our MS6 shenanigans at um, mi6-hq.com and on Twitter at James Bond Live. Um, fun fact: that account on Twitter was created to live block Quantum of Solace back in the day and it just stuck around uh, I wondered what the name was for yeah makes sense alright thank you gentlemen Thanks and we'll speak much. to you thank in a week you. good talking to you all good night <laughs>